So, as we, if you were here last night, um, you heard that this whole thing kind of starts off with betrayal. That Jesus having this final meal with his disciples actually serves the guy who is about to stab him in the back. And he knows that he's going to. Um, now, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced betrayal um, in one way or another, uh, whether somebody actively is betraying you or, or somebody is just not who you thought they were and things go south or, or some combination of the above. Uh, betrayal or within the idea of betrayal is a lot of evil. But that's just how things get started. So Jesus, after this final meal, and Judas slinks off at some point, knowing what he's going to do. Jesus then goes with his disciples out into the Kidron Valley, where he prays. And Judas apparently knows where they were planning on going. And so he shows up with um, chief priests, or at least the temple guard, uh, and betrays them with a kiss. Like, that, that feels personal. That's not pointing a guy out in the crowd. That's pretending like this is not happening up to the very moment it happens. That's dark. That's evil. And then Jesus, of course, is, is arrested And he's taken first before the chief priests. Uh, The chief priests who are the caretakers and cultivators of sacred space. Of the divine presence in the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. They uh, specifically try to uh, get, get somebody to trump up some charges. Um, they can't seem to get their act together enough to get some, enough people to agree. Um, but the fact that they try as professional, lifelong cultivators of sacred space is pretty dark. It's evil. Um, they mock him. They hit him and say, you're a prophet, prophesy. Who hit you? And then uh, they take him to Pontius Pilate. Uh, Because they know the kind of death that they want Jesus to die. And only Pontius Pilate, as the governor, as the representative of all the might, power, and authority of Rome in that region, is the only one capable of signing off on such a death. And they've, they've given it a lot of thought, too, because they know exactly the kind of charges that need to be levied against Jesus in order for a death like that to make sense. In the broader Roman world, everybody knew that there was one king. And at the time of Jesus' execution, that, of course, would be Caesar Tiberius. And so they take Jesus to, or yeah, they take Jesus to Pilate and, and say, this man has claimed to be a king. 
Um, in my own imagination, um, I kind of envisioned Pilate going, oh, you got to be kidding me. This is, a, this is a, a big week for me, guys. Come on. Now, Pilate has essentially one job uh, in that region as governor, and that is to protect the interests and security of Rome. This will not be his first, nor will it be his last uh, ha uh, time having to deal with somebody who is attempting insurrection, or at least that's the claim. And so you have these chief priests, cultivators of sacred space, caretakers of the divine presence of the living God, the creator God, who throughout the Hebrew Bible is described as the king, the one who through his prophet Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. Those guys know exactly what to say to manipulate Pilate into crucifying a man that, that they probably suspect is innocent. That's evil. Really evil. Now, Pilate, um, in his dealing with Jesus, uh, we, we learn from Luke, discovers that Jesus is a Galilean. Uh, I would suspect it was the accent. And uh, I, again, in my own historical imagination, is probably thinking, oh, yes. Oh, thank the gods. I can just shuffle him over to Herod because he's in Jerusalem because it's Passover. And so Jesus gets shuffled over to Herod. This is not Herod the Great, the one who murdered a bunch of children trying to murder Jesus, but actually his son. And uh, Herod, uh, this other Herod, he, he was famous for murdering John the Baptist, by the way. He gets excited. He's been wanting to see Jesus out of curiosity. And Luke tells us because he was hoping that Jesus would perform a miracle, which means that Jesus is kind of relegated to a circus act in Herod's mind. But when Jesus doesn't uh, go along with it, he kicks him back to, Her or, uh, to Pilate. Um, again, Pilate going, oh, Herod, could you do your job just once? So then Pilate has to actually figure out what to do. And he asks him point blank, are you a king? Now that may seem strange to us because uh, it is well within my rights to go out aside uh, and stand on Candelaria and proclaim myself king. It won't do anything, but I can. Might have a long conversation with the lay ministers um, as a result. <laughs> um, but it's not like they're going to come after me. The reason why Pilate is so keyed into this, and we'll hear this in the readings later, is that if Jesus, in fact, does claim to be a king and therefore a political force, and he has a following, which he does, then he is almost certainly a threat to Roman security and interests. And then he will have to deal with them. But when Pilate talks to this Jesus, 
he doesn't sound like uh, he doesn't sound like that type. He sounds, from Pilate's point of view, like a religious nut job, but that's not illegal. So Pilate, um, for Jesus' trouble, learned, or comes to the conclusion that he's innocent. He, he doesn't deserve to be crucified. Which is, that says a lot, because Pilate was a violent man. Um, we talked a few weeks ago during one of the midweek Lent services. Pilate was so violent that eventually Rome removed him from office. That's violent. So, for his trouble, Pilate determines that Jesus is innocent, but he has him beaten, scourged. Because that's, this is Rome, this is what you do. In case anyone was wondering who was in charge around here. In other words, Pilate, supposedly the keeper of the peace, sees an innocent man, and for his trouble, as we would say in Texas, had the tar kicked out of him. A beating, by the way, that some people didn't even survive. That feels pretty evil. That feels pretty dark. So Jesus, or Jesus, Pilate has some more conversations with the chief priests. And they keep pushing hard. Because they know that it's going to be a lot easier for Jesus to die. And even worse, if Jesus is even remotely who he seems to think he is, it means that they are going to lose everything. So it's way more expedient that he dies. That's evil. It's dark. So, Pilate then throws the people a bone. I'm skipping ahead a little bit. And says, you know what? It's Passover. It's my custom to release a prisoner uh, at this time. How about I release him? A man that Pilate does not find to be guilty. And the people instead want Barabbas. Now, there's a, a, a language pun there. Barabbas, Bar-Abbas, in Aramaic, means son of the father. It's not a coincidence that John very, very carefully keys us in to Jesus, the only begotten son of the father, going to his death, even though he's innocent, whereas this other son of the father, who is not innocent, goes free. Now, um, our, our translation today and most translations get this wrong. They say Barabbas was a robber. That is not the case. That is not what that word means. He was an insurrectionist. In other words, he was exactly what they're trying to get Pilate to think Jesus was. Again, that, that kind of manipulation is evil. It's scary what people are capable of. But they demand Barabbas. So Barabbas goes free. Jesus goes to his death. The soldiers mock him, Jesus. Um, Rome crucifies for the sake of propaganda. It's to be, to be done publicly 
Because it's to send a message that if you threaten the safety and security of Rome, this is what's going to happen to you. And uh, Roman soldiers knew how to make it last a long time. There were actually techniques for people being crucified to make their expiration quicker. And there were counter techniques that Roman soldiers could use to make sure they could not do that, to stretch it out as long as they could. I will not explain what those techniques are. They are rough. So again, taking a step back, you have an empire that is willing to use torture and murder as propaganda on a systemic level. That is evil. It is dark. And they use this to great effect. The infamous slave revolt led by Spartacus, you know, that movie, I'm Spartacus, no, I'm Spartacus. I actually haven't seen it, I just know that scene. Um, in, the, in, the actual, er, in the actual historical event, Rome crucified a slave every 100 yards for 120 miles along the Appian Way. You want to talk about systemic evil? There we go. This is a good example. But the soldiers are complicit too. I think these days, especially after uh, things like the Holocaust, we say, no, <laughs> you're not just following orders. You're complicit in this evil as well. And Jesus eventually dies. And in Christian circles, we often will say that Jesus died for my sins. That is a theological statement. Um, that's, of course, true. But the instant you start asking what that means, it gets a little hard to explain. Um, because if I say that Jesus died for my sins... Well, how? Because I wasn't there. But I think the gospel writers are very aware that it, it goes a whole lot deeper. Because by the time Jesus died, almost all of his disciples, except for one, except for John, have scattered. And for them, hope is gone. There is no more hope. It doesn't matter. This guy that they have sat and learned from for three years, they have witnessed miracles, they have witnessed a, a truly human being in the best sense of the word. And they had big hopes. Imagine that. A human being in all his or her human glory. Because being a human being is a beautiful, amazing thing. We are capable of so much. And to follow a guy around for three years and see the pinnacle of human thriving and then to watch that get snuffed out, there's no hope. There's no coming back from that. Even though his whole career, Jesus said, there's going to be more to that story, you get a very strong sense they don't buy it or they don't understand it. 
But when I say that Jesus died for my sins, or we say that Jesus died for our sins, I think it key it that that keys into this this idea of shared humanity. That if human beings are made in the image of God. Um, from the first all the way up until the moment Jesus hits the scene, that image is broken. It's about our shared humanity. And then Jesus hits the scene and then there's an actual image in all of his beauty of what it means to be human. And it's amazing. How do I know it's amazing? Because the world has never been the same since. But that's all theological talk. If you haven't noticed by now, I like history. And as I've hopefully made clear, that all the events swirling around Jesus' execution is really the sum total of evil. It would be very difficult to come up with or describe a type of evil that isn't in some way related to all the forces of evil that go into Jesus' death. I mean, you've got the big ones, the dehumanization, the betrayal, the mocking, the violence all the evil that we experience and the evil that we commit will find its root somewhere in there. And that's not a coincidence. Because Jesus took that evil onto his shoulders and it crushed him. However, That's all that evil has. Evil gave it its best shot. It exhausted itself on Jesus' back to the point of death. And at that point, what else is evil going to do? Because if Jesus were to get the last word, somehow, tune in later, then evil no longer has a hold. Amen.